I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 194, and today we are joined by Dwayne Diefenbach, a wildlife biologist and the leader of the Penn State Deer Forest Study. And we're discussing antler point restrictions, how deer research is conducted, lessons learned from monitoring deer movements, deer home range insights, and much, much more. Hello and welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. Today in the show, we are going to be joined by Dwayne Diefenbach. He is an adjunct professor of wildlife ecology at Penn State University and the leader of the Penn State Deer Forest Study and the Pennsylvania Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. Um, that's, that's a whole lot of things there as far as titles, but I think in short, what it means is that Dwayne spends an enormous amount of time studying and researching and monitoring and learning about white-tailed deer and their behavior, movements, impacts, all sorts of stuff. And I think it's, it's a lot of stuff that, that I and Dan, and I'm guessing all of you are probably going to be really interested in. So Today, with the 2017 hunting season kind of coming near to a close for many of us, I kind of thought we can take a step back from the hunting stuff and take a little time to get back to the basics and simply talk about and learn about these critters that we love so much. So that's my thoughts uh, leading into this one, Dan. Um, what do you think about that game plan? I like it, man. I tell you what, I... Uh... I've never done any type of official research before, so this kind of stuff triggers me, I guess. I, I really like to I learn about numbers. Like That's what I do for my, my real job, right? I, I, I look at spreadsheets all day. I run audits and, and that kind of thing. So when – you know, in order to do proper research, you have to do those things. So I'm, I guess I'm kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at is I'm kind of a nerd for statistics. <laughs> That's good. That's good. And it's funny you bring up what you do. We've been friends for many years now. We've hosted this podcast, done podcast episodes together for for three or four years now. I still don't really understand what you do. <laughs> what, well, I, what, I, what, what I imagine, Dan. Um, have you ever seen the movie Office Space? Uh, yeah. I've seen- <laughs> 
So I imagine two things. Either you're like one of the guys who just is really angry about his boss constantly telling him to put the cover sheet on the TPS report. You're either that guy or you're the guy, I think his name is, no, not Peter. I can't remember what his name is, but the two Bobs come in and they're interviewing him. So, so what exactly would you say you do here? And then he's like, <laughs> I told you, I'm a people person. <laughs> I think that might be you, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be. It could be. I'm that guy. I'm the guy who just takes one giant stamp. And I stamp a paper, and then I put it onto another pile. And mm. I stamp a paper, and then I put it onto another pile. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that help, that makes sense. Then that that helps paint a <laughs> paint a clear picture for me now. <laughs> right, I don't use a computer at all for my job. <laughs> oh man, so um, anything we need to cover in the life of Dan uh, before we get to our main show here, Dwayne? I don't, you know, as far as the, <laughs> I want to tell you a story, but I don't think I can. Is it uh, that, is it that R rated? It's, it's not R rated because it's about my daughter, but, okay. but it just is a reminder that I have to watch my mouth around the kids <laughs> and what I say. Uh, she, she. I'll just tell it. I'll just tell it and you can edit it out, edit parts out if you want. <laughs> okay. So the other day at school, be, be warned, listeners. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So the other day at school, um, or my my wife gets a notification. I think from the teacher and says, "Well, your your daughter used foul language at uh, to another student," and and my wife's like, "What happened? You know what happened?" And <laughs> like in a way, I'm kind of proud of her because she <laughs> used it the right way, but <laughs> but but she says. Another kid started crying over something real simple and petty, and she called that kid a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, then she went on to man. explain that if you cry over stuff like that, that she, like she goes, are you hurt? No. Then you're a, you know, and then you know, <laughs> like if you're crying because of nothing, that's what you are. And and I, I guess I, my wife's like, you have got to watch your mouth around the kids. So I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I got to, I'm, uh, by the way, I am not going to win any awards for like best dad. Ever. <laughs> I, okay. So I don't think this is news to anyone, Dan. So, <laughs> <laughs> But there is that one person who said they're a better father because of you. So right, right. Hold right. hold that close to your heart. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, other than that, you know, just uh, starting to think about late season, man. Uh, I think here. I mean, life is just so crazy right now with the holiday. The holidays coming up, but hopefully, I can get some trail cameras out, go to some of my properties, try to find some of these food sources, and uh, you know, start that whole game. So have you, assuming based on what you just said there, then you've not been out at all in December yet? No. The uh, the sh- Iowa shotgun seasons just ended on Sunday. Yeah. So you're thinking now, as I understand it, though, you have to hunt with a firearm now, right, since you filled your bow tag? Nope. Um, I can use a primitive weapon during that muzzle late muzzleloader season. Oh. So I I can continue to use my bow gotcha. during muzzleloader, you know, the late muzzleloader season, and that goes from now until the end of the season. Hmm. Um, so, and I I think there's a new law in Iowa, like I can use a crossbow now, 
I can in this in replace of a muzzle loader, I can use a handgun. Uh, so <laughs> I won't be doing any of that, but uh, there is an opportunity for me to go out and harvest a second buck if I if I find one worth shooting. Well, cool. That's exciting. I hope you do. I hope you get out there, man. So are you um, done? Done now? Are you oh, done? Oh no, no. Okay. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> I will tell you what, though. I'm just kind of. I am worn down. Like I am ready for. I'm ready for the season to be done. I think. Yeah. Just I just need kind of a fresh start. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, since we last chatted, I think I had told you. Well, maybe we didn't talk about it at all. Have we talked at all about my late season hunts for Holyfield? Well, after like, the last. The last time I talked with you, or I think even on this podcast, we chatted about going down to Ohio, and the last thing we knew, you saw a buck potentially worth shooting, but you were going to make a move that night. No, we talked, we talked since then, because we I talked to you about how the next day I moved, and then he showed up. I got there late, remember? Um Remember, I forgot all my hunting clothes at my hotel. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And so yeah, I got yeah. into the stop spot late, and when I got to the spot I wanted to hunt, there was already does feeding there, so I couldn't hunt there, but the big buck stepped out right where I wanted to be. The right, next right. day, the next day, I got to the spot I wanted to be, and the big buck came out where I was the night before. That's right, um, that's yeah. right. So that was the end of that Ohio trip. Okay, so now you're back in Michigan, right? So, yes, then I got back to Michigan, and a cold front was hitting a couple days later, so my game plan had been to stay out on the Michigan uh, main Michigan property where Holyfield is until that cold front hit. So the front hit and I started hunting. I started bouncing around. Um, and over the course of, I don't know, I think that front hit on the 5th of December, maybe something like that. And right. between the 5th of December and the 14th of December, I think I hunted maybe six times um, when there was good conditions, good wind direction, all that kind of stuff. Um and, you know, the, the long story short on that is I never saw Holyfield. I never saw any bucks at all. Um, right. Got into some good spots, had good weather, et cetera, et cetera, but just nothing but does. Right. So that was disappointing. So last year, Holyfield did kind of the same thing, right? He made it through gun season, showed up one or two more times, but then went away for a while. Or was he consistent all lat- late season last year? He was pretty consistent let- last December. Um, I only saw him, well, I saw him a few times in person in December, uh, including that time I had him, you know, in front of me at 65 yards. Um, but he was on trail camera a ton. Um, he was all over the cameras last year during the month of December. I have not gotten a single trail camera picture of him yet this month or in November. I don't have a single picture of him since October. Who? Holyfield. Wait, I thought he made it through the gun season. Oh, he did. I've seen him. People have seen him. Oh, okay. Trail um, camera pictures. Trail camera pictures. Yeah. So so I saw him, you know, 12 times in November and then um, got a sighting of him the day after gun season. Um, so, you know, visually was confirming he was alive, but no pictures at all. He hasn't been on those trail cameras at all, which is weird. Um yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I hunted, you know, during this time period, haven't seen him, no pictures. Um, so then I said, all right, time to, I'm not going to keep beating my head against a wall if you know, he's not moving daylight or anything. So then last weekend I went to Ohio and hunted in Ohio Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, thought I'd try to catch, they had a little two day gun season going on and 
no luck there either. Um, saw some deer. Um, one night, I think it was Saturday night in particular, I thought I felt pretty good about it. Um, got set up in this spot near where I'd seen this big buck um, the trip before and um, just started seeing all sorts of deer, more deer than I ever see on this property. Um, ended up seeing maybe seven or eight does and I think six different bucks. Um, nice. And these does all came piling off these ridges and they all came by within shooting range of me. And these bucks were chasing does. They're they're bumping does around. I think there was a young fawn that maybe was coming into estrus finally. You know that kind of second rut. You get these late maturing yep. fawns because um, it was nuts. Like I've, I haven't seen anything like that on this property in, in a long time. Um, the issue was that these bucks were all young bucks, two year olds and year and a half olds. Um, but it got me excited. I was like, man, if there's you know a fawn here and all these bucks are congregating in one area, a couple bucks were fighting. Um, all this stuff going on. I was like, man, maybe, maybe this would be <laughs> the time the big boy shows, but he didn't. Um, I guess the only good news is that there were pictures. There was a good amount of trout camera activity recently with three different mature bucks still in the area. Um, somewhat consistently, you know, all showing up a few times a week. Um, right. so there's bucks there, but, uh, they were not moving in daylight when I was there. So three days there, no luck, came back home. And uh, I just pulled trail cameras again. I haven't checked pictures in like 10 days or two weeks or something like that. And again, nothing on camera. Um, just a few pictures of that one three-year-old I was calling Survivor um, and some year-and-a-half-olds, and that's basically it. So uh, I think things are kind of... I think things are kind of coming to a close here the 2017 season. Um Pretty soon so, here in a few days, I probably got to switch over to shooting some does because I, I just have to kill some does out here. Yeah, um, that was going to be my question is when when do you give up and then and on Holyfield and then go out and just try to fill the freezer? Yeah, I think I'm I'm a few days away from doing that. Um, so pretty soon here, it's going to be time to just get that done um, and then, uh, you know, move on to 2018 and whatever that might hold. So, yeah, man, it's crazy how different our seasons have been mm -hmm. when you think about it, because you're getting to the point where you say, man, you're worn down because you've been hunting so hard, you know, throughout almost the entire from September all the way till now. Yeah. And I'm I'm to the point where, man, I cannot wait to get out and sit a late season hunt, even if it means 40 degrees in December. You know what I mean? Like. I, I feel like my season was over too soon. Yeah, very, very different seasons. I think you hunted 10 days and saw like six bucks over 150, and I hunted <laughs> I hunted like 150 days and saw six bucks over 10 inches, <laughs> something like that. Um, it's been a... It's been a season, man. I'll tell you that. But yeah. uh, next episode, I think we do, I want to do like a 2017 analysis like review the season go through in detail pretty oh, yeah. soon i want to sit down and like think through all the things that i thought coming into the season all the things i've learned after the season all the mistakes i made um i want to do like a really comprehensive review for myself and and, and i thought maybe that'd be helpful to share that here so keep sure. that keep that in mind for yourself dan for our next one um so we can both do that perfect but uh, I guess it is now time for us to wrap this up because it's it's time to get Dwayne on the phone. So, 
Let's take a quick break here for our Sitka story, and then we'll call Dwayne. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Sitka photographer Kayla Boyd, who tells us about a hunt of a lifetime that never ended with the harvest. So I've been fortunate enough to travel and photograph around the world on commercial and documentary hunts. And one of my most memorable hunting experiences was capturing a hunt for a U.S. Marshal that was retired. And it was on a brown bear hunt out of Good News Bay, Alaska. The 10-day hunt turned into a 14-day crazy rain, freezing, snowing, um, out of tents, and glassing for 10 to 12 hours a day. Uh, and it was unbelievable weather where we saw wolves, wolverine, bears, moose, you name it. And it was on the frozen tundra. So each night was windy and raining. And it was it was a long time. So 14 days out in the field. And it was one of the coolest experiences of my life being able to see all these animals and yet not take an animal. And so even though the hunt was unsuccessful, the experience was an adventure of a lifetime. On Caleb's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's mountain pants and jet stream vest. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, with us now on the show is Dwayne Diefenbach. Welcome to the show, Dwayne. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, and uh, I was I was mentioning to Dan um, earlier that I've been following uh, your work through the Deer Forest Study over on your blog for a handful of years now, um, and I've just been pretty fascinated with the things you've been sharing, the little updates in regards to what you're doing and how you're doing, and, and different different insights you've pulled from that study. So, so for a while, I've wanted to try to have you on the show. I'm excited that we can finally do this. So, so first off, thank you. And secondly, um, for those, though, that maybe aren't familiar with who you are and the work you're doing, can you just kind of give us a quick overview of, of what it is you do and, and how you got to this point? Sure. Um, so I, uh, I'm the uh, leader of the Pennsylvania Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit, which is located at Penn State University. I'm actually an employee of the U.S. Geological Survey, um, but because I'm stationed at Penn State, um, I'm also on the adjunct faculty. So it gives me a unique position where um, I do research. Um, I also do a little bit of teaching. I mentor graduate students. And one of the more important parts of my job is to work collaboratively with our state uh, natural resource agencies. And so um, for the past 17 years, I've been doing deer research with the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And uh, a few years ago, um, I actually also started a joint project with both the Game Commission and our Pennsylvania Bureau of Forestry. So the Bureau of Forestry manages about 2 million acres in Pennsylvania. Um, and both agencies, of course, um, have a vested interest in managing deer um, the best they can. And so 
both agencies are working with me now on on our current deer research. So so why did you want to get involved with deer deer research in the beginning, you know, 17 years ago when, when you started with this focus area? <laughs> I have to laugh because <clears throat> most of my career I've avoided deer. <laughs> um I uh I've done work on waterfowl and uh I reintroduced bobcats to an island and have done various research projects and and quite frankly I never was that excited about having to do research with deer but of course when I started in this position um deer are very important to the game commission and right around 2000 um they decided that they wanted to do some research because for years they really hadn't done any research on deer and um they were thinking about implementing some major changes um they ended up implementing antler point restrictions in pennsylvania um to create an older age structure in the buck population and so along with that they knew that they needed to do research and so um uh, that's where I came in, and I guess I haven't looked back. It's actually, despite my trepidation, um, it's actually been very rewarding because the Pennsylvania Game Commission has provided uh, a lot of resources towards the deer research, so we've been able to do some really interesting work and address just some basic questions about why deer disperse and how they disperse and 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 things like that so it's it's actually been a fun ride i imagine so so speaking of those early issues there you mentioned you know how there was a lot of work being done around the antler point restrictions when those were introduced um did you get involved in analyzing you know the health of the herd or anything along those lines before and after those were introduced yeah that was a big project from 2002 to 2005 um we actually, we radio collared oh, over 500 deer um, and because we wanted to look at what harvest rates were before antler point restrictions were implemented. Uh, we wanted to know what harvest rates were afterwards and we wanted to know whether um, deer that weren't harvested the first year because their racks were too small whether they survived and were actually available to be harvested in the second year. So, you know, those were questions that people didn't really know the answer to. And um, we said, well, if we're going to make these changes, we need to know what actually happens. So we looked at the biological side of things. Um, at the same time, probably more importantly, we wanted to know what hunters thought about antler point restrictions before they were implemented, during and after. And so it was a complete evaluation of both the social side of, of uh, what we call APRs or antler point restrictions, as well as the biological effects. So, of course, now I need to ask, um, in particular, because the whole issue of APRs have been a hot topic in my home state of Michigan, um, we've instituted APRs in one corner of the state, um, and then it's been, a, it's been a hotly contested debate over the last year or so, a couple of years, about whether that should be instituted across the rest of the state. Um, do you recall what you guys ended up finding out as far as the social and biological answers to those questions you just posed were? 
Well, the bottom line is from a biological standpoint, antler point restrictions work. Um, in Pennsylvania, we found that hunters were, you know, obeyed the law. Um, they, um, there was, you know, some, um, there was very little illegal killing of deer. There was a little bit of mistaken kill. Um, um, but for the most part, um, we increased the number of older aged bucks by like 40%. So, wow. um, it was a success, um, from the standpoint of creating an older age structure of bucks, um, from the, from the social side, it was pretty interesting. What we found was that, um, Hunters that supported, well, I would say basically hunters made up their mind before we implemented antler point restrictions. Either they said they were going to work beforehand and supported them or they didn't. And after antler point restrictions, it really didn't change their mind. Hmm. And how has that study continued on? today i mean are people still tracking the social um side of that at all because i'm curious to hear you now that it's been a significant number of years since if viewpoints have changed uh, at all do you know that um well the game commission our, our research has concluded but the game commission does do um surveys from time to time every couple of years and uh i think the what we found in our study is that before antler point restrictions were implemented about 60% of hunters supported them. And by the time we got done, it, it was basically the same. And I think that pretty much holds true today. Interesting. It sounds like from the things I'd heard, it was uh, quite a contentious issue there for you guys as well. Um, I heard it got a little bit, uh, oh, a little feisty at some of these different town hall meetings and uh, a little heated as far as uh, the road show that I know that I think it was Gary Alt who, who was who at the time I think was kind of trying to communicate with the hunting population about why this is a good idea. And um, it sounded like that right. was quite an interesting time to be in Pennsylvania. Is well, that you know, the, a critical component of this, and, and Gary Alt went all over the state for a couple of years meeting with holding, you know, tens if not hundreds of public meetings and and eventually meeting literally with tens of thousands of sportsmen in Pennsylvania um and what he generally found is overwhelming support of the people who attended those meetings and um but i think that education um other people not just us have pointed out that if you're going to make changes like this you really need to do your homework up front and inform hunters of what the changes are going to be, what the expectation is, what they can expect to see. Um, and that's really important to making sure it's a success. And I think that has a lot to do with why it was successful in Pennsylvania in that the majority of hunters supported it before they were implemented. Hmm. I got a quick question in, in regards to like the logistics of this research and how it was implemented. What, like how, how long did this research take? How, uh, how did you go about collecting all that data? 
Well, we did surveys before and after every hunting season. So in 2002, um, which was basically um, uh, sort of a pre-treatment, right? Because you had all these bucks out there and then suddenly many of them were not going to be legal to harvest and there weren't that many older aged bucks, only about 20% of our population was two and a half years or older. Um, the odds of having a four and a half year old buck in the population were probably on the order of one to 2%. Um, so what we did was in the winter before APRs were implemented, we caught as many deer as we could, um, male deer and put radio collars on them so that we could monitor their harvest rates and survival rates. Um, and then, as I mentioned, right before that first hunting season, uh, we sent out a survey to a random sample of hunters. And then we did another survey right after the end. And then, of course, the next winter, we captured and radio collared more deer. And we did that for three years. So you, you captured and collared 500 deer, right? Roughly. Yeah, I forget the actual numbers, but it was between five and six hundred deer, I believe. So, so how did that happen? I mean, was that it throughout different parts of the state, or was that in one general area? Was it like, did it take well, one weekend? Two areas. One, because Pennsylvania, we the APRs are divided into a three-point area and a four-point area because our western Pennsylvania has better habitat and a lot more yearlings. Um, will have uh, four, you know, will be eight points in their first year, or a lot of them will be six points, and some will even be eight points. Um, so, so in the Western PA, they had to have four points on a side. So we had one study area out in the Western part of the state, and then we had another study area in the central part of the state where we had a three-point rule. Um, so we had two study areas, had crews capturing deer in both areas uh, for three years. Okay, so that was over, it was 500 deer over a three-year period. Yes, yes. Okay, okay, I gotcha. And I don't know if you even have the information or can answer this, but how much did this undertaking cost? Uh... Well, let's see. That's already about 10 years ago, but I would say um, over the three years, oh boy, well over a million dollars. Okay. Quite an endeavor, I would yeah. imagine. Absolutely. Yes. Deer well, research is not cheap. It's very, <laughs> we figure it costs us about $1,000 for every deer that we capture. Wow. Can you, crazy. now that we're on this topic, um, can you outline for us actually how you go about a deer capture, um, whether it be for a study like you did back in 2002, three, four, and five, or, you know, eventually I want to move into the current research being done. I'm kind of curious to hear about actually how you're getting your hands on these deer and putting collars or whatever it might be on them. How does that actually happen for you guys? Well, we've tried lots of different things. We've used helicopters, um, dart guns. Uh, we have clover traps, which are basically a, just a walk-in trap. 
Um, we've used rocket nets where rockets fire a net over bait. Um, and we also use drop nets, which are even larger nets that are um, set up with a trigger that the deer walk under the net and it drops down on them. What we've found is that um, uh, helicopters are not effective. Um, well, they can be, but they're they're really not practical in the eastern U.S. with our forests. Um, uh, dart guns are really time-consuming, and uh, we've given up on trying to dart free-ranging deer. Um, so basically, we're we in our current research project on the deer forest study, we just use rocket nets and clover traps. Um, if we're in an area that has a lot more open areas and, and higher densities of deer, uh, we might use drop nets because we can catch a lot of deer at one time. But for the most part, we just use the clover traps and rocket nets. So you get a deer netted. And then, mm -hmm. so there's a deer on the ground with a net around it. I got to imagine that deer is struggling. Um, what happens next? I imagine someone runs up to it, grabs it, tries to cover its head or something. Uh, can you walk me through that? Sure. If we catch deer with a rocket net, usually we're, we're catching two or three deer, but we might catch five, six, seven, eight. Um, so those deer are tangled up in the net. Um, we have a crew that, that will restrain them and we also sedate them because you know, if we catch three or four deer, it's going to take, even if they were sedated, it might take 10, 15, 20 minutes to get them untangled from the net. So we have to sedate the deer. Uh, we always blindfold deer when we handle them because with them not being able to see, that reduces some of the stimulation and they're calmer. Um, and so we'll sedate them, untangle them out of the net. At that point, we can you know, tag them, collar them. If we have to collect any samples, we'll do that at that time. Um, and then, uh, then we can give them a, a reversal drug for the sedative. And, uh, we have to basically monitor to them until they're able to get up and, and, uh, move on their own. <laughs> if we capture a deer in a clover trap, um, we generally don't like to sedate them because, if we have a well-trained crew, they can go in, um, restrain the deer, fit the collar, and, and ear tag it and collect whatever data we need to collect in, in about three to five minutes. So there's really no need to sedate them because the stress is um, very, very short term. And, uh, and if you don't have to sedate an animal, it's, it's a lot better because less things to go wrong. Yeah. So, so you're leading, you know, these studies now, do, do you still get to do any field work like that today? Or do you have grad students or, or, or crew, as you mentioned, doing all that stuff now? I only go out if it's nice weather. <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> I ask because I'm wondering, you know, is, is like that, is this kind of thing, is this the really fun part when you're in the field, hands on, actually like up close to these animals? Is that what you love about it? Or is, is, is your passion more so in just understanding from far out and analyzing and seeing the big picture? 
Oh, I guess I'm a little bit of a different wildlife biologist in that I really like the data um, to see the patterns. So there's different rewards. I mean, obviously, um, capturing deer is, I, I call it capture and release hunting, <laughs> right? Because you're, you're trying to outsmart these animals, get them to walk into your trap or, or in front of the rocket net and capture them. So you have to figure out what their patterns are, what they're doing, um, how can you get them to, you know, come into the bait. Um, and then, of course, handling the animal. You know, it's always exciting. I mean, who gets to hold a live white-tailed deer? Um, but, but the more rewarding aspect, at least for me, is, uh, is when, you, when you get all these data, um, when all the data are collected, and you can analyze it, then you can start to see patterns. And then then you get to understand um, things that you otherwise wouldn't know just from watching a deer or handling a deer. Um, when you have, you know, 500 deer, data from 500 deer over three years, then you can really get to understand about what's going on with these animals. Yeah. Before we get into, because this is going to lead, Mark's got some more questions for you about the the studies and what the findings were, but I have a real quick question about what happens when a hunter shoots or kills one of these tagged animals? What happens next? Do they have specific instructions that they are supposed to follow? How does that get educated out to them and whatnot? Well, um, every deer it's ear tagged and the radio collar has um has wording on there with a toll-free number and it also indicates that there's a hundred dollar reward if they report the recovery of that collar i mean you know it could be someone just walking in the woods uh could be a roadkill deer um most of them are you know most mortality is is hunter harvest so most of the time it's a hunter who harvested a deer and is reporting it to us so they just call the toll-free number. Um, we, uh, you know, get the information from them, and uh, and if we need to, we'll recover the caller. Interesting. And Dan, you were you were spot on. You, you know me well now. You know where I'm trying to go with things. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that was where I wanted to direct things next, um, Dwayne. Because as you mentioned, you really enjoy the patterns and understanding the high level data that kind of illuminates bigger picture behaviors. Um, and from what I've seen following from a distance, this recent work you've been doing with the deer forest study has given you an opportunity to see some of those things that I think us hunters might be particularly interested in as well. So can you, um, can you fill us in real quick on what this current project is? You've been working on this deer forest study. What is it? What have you been looking, looking at? What are the goals been so far? Um, and then from there, I've got some questions about some of the things you've learned. Sure. So the deer forest study really should be called the forest deer study, but <laughs> deer are more charismatic and it rolls off the tongue better if you call it the deer forest study. Um, and really, um, in Pennsylvania, we've been doing a series of projects. Um, what we do, what I do is in working with the game commission is we sit down and say, okay, we have to make a decision here about managing deer. What is it that we don't know that we would really, what's the most important thing that we don't know that we'd like to know? 
And that's how we focused our research. So we've looked at, you know, the effects of APRs. After that, we moved on to female survival and harvest rates and how that relates to how we model populations. And um, and we've answered other things along the way about dispersal and all sorts of stuff. But right now we're at the point where, um, you know, the Game Commission is making decisions and in their decision model, um, the biologists need to make recommendations to the Board of Commissioners who make the decisions about what to do. And we have a, a sort of a decision model that the biologists work through and they're looking at deer population trends and habitat conditions, um, as well as what, um, what hunters or society desires. Those are the three things that go into it. And, and what we've, what's happened is we know a lot about deer in Pennsylvania now. now. We, we have a pretty good handle on how we model numbers and look at trends in populations survival and harvest rates. Um, what we don't have a good handle on is, is the forest conditions and how those conditions are being affected by deer browsing. We know there's been lots and lots of research that deer can have a tremendous effect on the environment. Um, they have preferred species of plants that they prefer to eat, you know, just like you and I would prefer ice cream over Brussels sprouts. You know, they prefer trillium and Indian cucumber over, um, you know, something as untasty as mountain laurel or rhododendron. So they can, you know, if you have a lot of deer on the landscape, they can have a real impact. And, and so we know they can have an impact, but the question is, um, what are the desired habitat conditions and what is it that we need to monitor to say, okay, deer are not really having an impact. We're happy with the forest conditions as they are. And so that's the focus of this research. We've got four study areas. Um, each study area is about, oh, anywhere from 25 to 40 square miles. And what our goal is, is to in each of these areas, um, either stabilize or change deer populations and at the same time monitor um, vegetation and see um, and hopefully learn a couple of things. A, what things about the habitat on the vegetation should we be measuring? Um, how does the habitat respond to changes in deer density? Um, and also, how do hunters respond to the uh, actions that we're taking? Because we're using hunters as a management tool to manipulate deer numbers. Um, and so they're a very important tool, a crucial tool to the Game Commission. So we also want to better understand how hunters hunt on these areas. Hmm. So, so this is a rather rudimentary question, but uh, can you explain for us why this kind of uh, leg of the stool matters you mentioned you know hunters and deer and then habitat why does understanding the the proper um, habitat health matter why do we want to make sure that deer and habitat are in balance um, i think this is something that, that a lot of people understand but maybe some people might say well i think i think it might be fair to say that a lot of guys 
um, a lot of hunters just want more deer, right? Uh, if more deer means better hunting, I think at some level, if you, if you at a very simple level, you might assume more deer means better hunting. Um, why might that be wrong? And why do you think having the proper balance matters? Well, first of all, let me see a couple of things before I dive into that. First of all, um, you know, this, all of this is driven by human society's values. Um, hunters obviously are a big part of this, but, um, deer are a public resource and so the state agencies have to be responsible to not just hunters um of course hunters are a big part of it but they also have to look at um that all stakeholders and all people that are influenced by deer whether it's because of a vehicle collision or damage to their um landscaping or industrial uh timber companies who are having problems with regenerating forest. Um, society, the Game Commission has developed a deer management plan working with society to set some objectives, goals and objectives for managing deer. And so based on those objectives, um, they're trying to make the best decision possible. And I would say from a hunting perspective, why would you not want to just maximize deer? Well, <clears throat> Um, probably for the main reason is that you're not going to have the deer that you want um, if you don't take into account habitat. I mean, a farmer doesn't just say, well, I've got 20 acres and I want to raise 150 cattle on those 20 acres. You can't do it. Um, he's gonna, he might be able to keep 100 cows alive on 20 acres, but it's going to be a mud pit and he's going to have to bring in a lot of hay and he could do it. And the same thing goes with deer. We could have a lot more deer in Pennsylvania, but is it the deer that you want? Um, and, uh, and so having a, 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 trying to have some sort of balance between habitat quality and deer numbers. Um, if you can, seek that balance you're going to maximize potentially the size of deer the reproductive rates of deer um and generally have a healthy deer population which you know i would think would be lead to uh you know happier hunters in terms of a more higher quality hunting experience yeah yeah i i certainly agree with that um in, I'm, now I'm kind of rewinding the clock a little bit, but in some of your earlier work, you mentioned that some of your research, some of your projects have related to some of these things as far as modeling populations. Um, is that something you uh, could speak to, which is how do, how does the Game and Fish Commission and or you know researchers they work with determine that balance, or how what are you guys looking at to help figure out what that proper balance point is? Um, is that something you've had some experience with? Well, um, I think this current project is trying to get a better idea of what that balance is between habitat and deer numbers. Um, in, you know, in, you know, back up a second, quite frankly, um, deer management in North America, the travesty is, is that any wildlife management is traditionally been called a three-legged stool, as you mentioned earlier. There's the species you're managing, 
there's the habitat that species depend on, and there's people. If you look at deer management in uh, in North America, for the most part, they they address the concerns of people and they address deer numbers, but they don't address habitat. In fact, Pennsylvania is the only state in, in the Northeastern uh, US that explicitly has some uh, goals and objectives relating to habitat conditions. Um, and so, um, you know, and we've only recently implemented that. I mean, we've been, um, well, we've had have had some goals, in, excuse me, in the past, but but Pennsylvania's, you know, is a rare situation in that we're trying to explicitly incorporate habitat conditions in while making deer management decisions. Hmm. So, um, so just getting deer counts and estimates of deer numbers and trends is not so difficult. There are some different methods out there just based on, you know, using hunter harvest data um, that it's, I mean, it's expensive. I mean, the agency puts a lot of personnel time and effort into collecting those data, but it can be done. Um, the hard part is figuring out that balance and, and that's where this project is coming in. So I really, I really see it as um, this current project as being cutting edge, um, potentially being, well, not just potentially, but being, will be very informative for the game commission who has to make manage, management decisions statewide, as well as the Bureau of Forestry that has to make decisions on the two million acres that they're responsible for. So, so have you to this point yet been able to um, achieve any of the goals uh, that you have kind of laid out for this study yet, or, or have there been any um, takeaways yet that are actionable, or is that still some time to come? Well, you know, when we started this, we knew that this was going to be have to be a long-term project, and that's because um, deer are easy. There, there's more deer born every year. Um, you know, a buck, average age of a buck is um, it's still a year and a half old. Most of the bucks are a year and a half old, but you have a high turnover, and so you can learn a lot in just a few years monitoring deer. Vegetation, right? The if you're going to grow a stand of oak, um, that's going to take at least 80 years. So, so we're talking about a completely different time frame or perspective than what biologists usually think about. Now, foresters think about 80-year time frames, but biologists are usually thinking about two, three, four, five years. Well, now in two, three, four, five years you might have an oak seedling go from six inches to three feet tall. Um, and so to be able to monitor vegetation change is going to take what, and we've already found this out at least five years and probably 10 years before we start to get a good handle on the vegetation response to the changes we make in, in deer numbers. How fragile is that balancing act? as far as uh, population versus habitat? Um, I don't think it's too fragile. I mean, we've been trying to manage or mismanage deer for over 100 years. 
um, and we still have forests. It's just, is it the forest that you want? Um, we have lots of places in Pennsylvania that, you know, back in the 80s, um, we had very high deer densities. And so basically, black cherry was very successful at growing, but not so much sugar maple or or other species. So um, the forest will survive, but there will be some effects. And deer populations aren't going to crash because of these things. Um, I think what we are is the, the wildlife profession is maturing, and we're at a point where we have a lot of the basic tools. Now we're trying to learn how to fine-tune those and put a sharper point on those tools. And then getting a little bit more specific, who makes those decisions on how this, this habitat should be and what is considered a good habitat? Yeah, so that's a difficult thing. Um, what the Game Commission has done is looked at um, uh, data that the U.S. Forest Service collects as part of a national program. And, um, and forest ecologists have identified um, some certain minimum level of uh, tree regeneration, what we call it advanced regeneration. So if you have a forest out there, there's big trees, obviously like oaks that are dropping acorns. And those acorns do lead to seedlings that pop up in the understory. And that's called advanced regeneration because if you go in and cut down those large oaks, those small seedlings that are on the ground are what are going to pop up and replace those large trees that you removed. So there are some um, standards depending on the forest type and the habitat of um, sort of some minimum conditions that you'd want to see um, in terms of advanced regeneration of seedlings. And so that's what the Game Commission is using right now. Um, <clears throat> however, there's more than just trees out in the forest and um, and and Agencies like the Bureau of Forestry are not just responsible for trees, but their their mandate is to look at the plant community as a whole. And so there's lots of understory species um, uh, like trillium and Indian cucumber and vibe, um, uh, uh, some hobblebush, which is a viburnum. In fact, hobblebush is extremely rare in Pennsylvania because it's highly preferred by deer. And with the high deer densities that we've had in the past, it's disappeared in a lot of places. Um, so, so, but those, those other things like those understory plants, we really don't know a lot. We People have done research and they say, yeah, deer love trillium, deer love Indian cucumber. Um, but what we don't know is what percent of the landscape out there should have Indian cucumber. How common should it be? And so we don't even have any idea what that should be. And that's part of what we're trying to address with this research is get some insights into um, what level of um, deer numbers would lead to, um, you know, a plant diversity of, of plants in the understory community that uh, would be acceptable to, to society. 
All right, let's pause here for a moment to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Dave Skinner, a land specialist out of Kentucky. And Dave is going to be telling us about what to look for when buying a property with intentions of early season whitetail hunting. You know, in Kentucky, our season comes in in September. And if you're looking specifically for that early season hunt, there's a couple things to keep in mind. One, just like late season, food sources are king. Um, and there's two food sources in Kentucky that trump everything else in September, soybeans and acorns. Um, if I'm looking to hunt specifically that early season, I want to make certain I either have soybeans on the property or adjacent to the property. Uh, more than anything, though, acorns are always number one. Uh, I want to know that there's white oak trees on the property um, because when those acorns are falling, that's where the deer will be. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Dave currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Skinner. That's S-K-I-N-N. ER. So a lot of the a lot of the big picture takeaways from the study could be years out. It sounds like this is a long-term thing. Um, but I do know from the things I've read on your website and different presentations that I've seen online um, that that you guys are learning plenty in the interim as far as deer behavior, just given the the interesting insights you guys are able to gain by the fact simply that you have, you know, uh, collared and are tracking so many different deer. Um, right. What What are some of the the most interesting things that you guys have learned so far on that front? Yeah. So um, so we collar deer um, in this study because we do need to keep track of numbers and get an idea of how many deer are out there, what the harvest rates are, um, and um, and we've been using these GPS satellite collars um, because they're really they're expensive, but they're also very cost effective because um, instead of having a truck and multiple multiple trucks and technicians running around the woods with antennas trying to track deer, um, with these satellite GPS collars, I can sit at my desk and get hundreds of times more data than I ever could with a an army of, of field technicians. So, so those callers have just been sort of a side benefit of this project um, that have provided a lot of insights into how deer move um, in different times of the year, um, in particular how they respond to hunting, um, which is interesting for us because like I said, part of this study is to learn about how hunters hunt um, what the harvest rates are that we see on these study areas. In particular, if we're trying to manage or manipulate deer numbers, um, you need to do that through antlerless harvest. So how these deer respond to hunting is, for me, has been the most fascinating part of this project. Yeah. So, so tell us about that. What have you seen as far as a, a year in a life of a deer, maybe maybe buck if you've got bucks in particular, um, and then how does hunting pressure impact that? I've seen sure. I've seen some interesting things you guys have posted as far as, you know, actually looking at one specific buck and learning about a specific buck's travel patterns throughout the year, and I was pretty fascinated by that. Yeah, for actually, if, if you indulge me for a second, I'll back up a little bit. About ten years ago or so, I had a student who um, 
we didn't have satellite callers at that time, but we were interested in in deer harvest rates and how where a deer lived on the landscape, how that might influence its probability of being harvested. And so what he did was he captured a bunch of deer, radio collared them. And then we also did some aerial surveys and were able to map hunter density across his study area where he had all these collared deer. And we found real differences in in how hunters were distributed across the landscape. And actually, um, what was really interesting is what he found is there was sort of this sweet spot that if you you were most deer was most likely to be harvested if it was oh about a third of a mile from a road um if it, if you were real close if a deer was real close to the road you know its home range was real close to the road um it would have have a very high probability of being harvested and then as you got further away from that road that probability of being harvested would decline but if you looked at like hunter success the sweet spot wasn't right next to the road because that's where all the hunters were the sweet spot was a little bit further away from the road where there weren't quite as many hunters um but you still had enough hunters that you we're moving deer around and those deer ended up getting harvested anyway. So that was really intriguing, um, but it was kind of a black box type of thing because we knew where deer were sort of on the landscape and we knew where hunters were, but we didn't have any real time data, right? All we could say is, yeah, this is where this deer spent its time and it got harvested and this is where this deer spent most of its time and it didn't get harvested. Well, now what we can do with these satellite collars is actually watch these deer move in real time. And in Pennsylvania, you have to keep in mind, we've got like three quarters of a million deer hunters. Um, uh, most of those are out during our 12 day rifle season. So there's intensive hunting pressure. And so how do those deer respond, um, especially on public lands? Because there's lots of conventional wisdom out there. Oh, they run off the public land and they spend all their time on private land. Or, you know, they go nocturnal and they don't move during the day. Um, so what actually happens? And what we found is that... Um, that that conventional wisdom isn't all correct at what it's cracked up to be um and and insights that sort of explained what we saw with that earlier study and so these deer um respond very much to the hunting pressure um they respond before the deer season opens um i give a lot of talks and show show hunters movies um and i ask them so what happens on Saturday and Sunday? Because we always have a Monday opener for deer season. And they said, well, um, Saturday and Sunday, everyone's going out to their deer stand. And I said, yeah, exactly. And, and that just triggers the behavior in the deer and they know something's up. Mm -hmm. And so um, come Monday morning by 2 to 4 o'clock in the morning, a lot of those deer are in a hiding spot. 
that they've discovered and they just sit tight until middle of the day and then they might start moving in the afternoon um, but they respond to that hunting pressure um, that's really really interesting and then there's lots of different aspects but I'm rambling on here and my you must have another question. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk about this um, this immediate reaction to you know opening day hunting pressure. You mentioned that some of them go into a hiding spot of some sort. Can you elaborate on specifically what you found? Um, were these deer? You know, you mentioned that some people think a lot of these deer just run off public land, or some of these deer go completely nocturnal. Um, can you elaborate on those two points? So, did you see that these deer did they stay in the same general area as pressure, but just stop moving as much? Did they change the time of day they moved in more? I'd love to hear the details of that. Yeah. So, um, uh, in these study areas where we are, which is you know ninety plus percent forested. Um, the deer, the average home range of a deer is about a square mile, a male and a female deer, except during the rut, male home ranges expand to two, some of them up to three, four square miles. But if you exclude the rut, the home range of these deer is about a square mile. Um, during, the, during the rifle season, they don't leave their home range. Um, they've... The ones that are still alive, of course, we're only collaring um, adult deer that are at least a year and a half old. So in their, the first hunting season that they're watching them, they've already survived two hunting seasons. We're, we're monitoring them during their third hunting season. So they're two and a half years old, at least. Some are older. Um, so what those deer do is they've through by just getting lucky have found out that if I go to this spot in my home range, I am unlikely to be disturbed and I'm just going to hunker down there until this hunting season is over with. And so where I said a home range of um, a deer is about a square mile, uh, when you look during that two week hunting season, um, it averages about 100 acres. Interesting. Did you did you look at this at all, um, or did you did you separate out any of this data by age class? So could you see with a four and a half old buck or older, they moved X, and a two and a half year old though moved Y? Did you look at anything along those lines? Um, no, we haven't because first of all, we don't age. We only age our deer as. Um, juveniles which is less than a year old or adults over a year old um and the reason we do that is that it's just too difficult and we don't really need to know how old it is um other than juvenile adult and adult um and the other thing i can say is that looking at deer that we've followed for two three years um their behavior does doesn't change what about broken down by sex? Um, well, both males and females have a hiding spot during that intensive hunting period. Um, although bucks, from what I've seen, um, are a little bit different in that they tend to like, um, if they're going to hide out, it's going to be on a, on a ridge 
or um, on a crest of. So we've got two different. Yeah, I need to back up a little bit. Two of our study areas are in central Pennsylvania, which is what's called in the Ridge and Valley region. So we have these long linear ridges and valleys that go in sort of a, a southwest to northeast direction. In our northern study area, it's up on what's called the Allegheny Plateau. And this is, it looks very mountainous, but really what it is, is it's a flat plain that eroded. So the mountaintops are flat, and then you have these steep drainages where erosion has occurred over the millennia. And so in both of these places, the bucks will sit either on the, on the edge of one of these steep um, uh, ravines or on the top of a ridge, and that's their preferred hiding spot. Usually in a place where if it's flat to the west, they can smell anything that's coming from the prevailing winds. And on the eastern side, there's no way you'd sneak up on them because it's, you know, very steep slopes. And so if they do get disturbed, they can just jump off that point and heck, in, in um, 30 seconds to a minute, they would be hundreds of feet below you in elevation and, you know, half a mile away. Yeah. I now, love- the doe, the females, they tend to have a similar hiding spot, but not, it just seems to be an area that they run to where they didn't get disturbed. I love that you were able to see this with your studies and these, these collared deer because because what you described there as far as these typical hideouts, you know, it, it is right in line with what so many hunters have seen as far as where, you know, these bucks tend to like to bed. You know, so often from observation, um, you'll find that these mature bucks especially find a great bedding spot or hiding spot, as you might call it, you know, during a pressured time of year up on a ridge where they can see down ahead of them, they can smell behind them. And it makes sense from a from a rational kind of logic standpoint if you just think how would a deer be able to survive. Um, but it's really neat to see the actual data um, prove that too. Um, yeah, I just posted a blog today um, where it's a buck that we followed for three years. And I show some of these spots where he hid out on these ridges and some of them are right next to a road, but they're <laughs> steep. You know, they're 40 per, you know, if, if you, for every um, two feet that you go horizontally, you need to go a foot up. So they're very steep and, and not many people, certainly not me, are going to be traipsing around those areas and they, they discover them and that's where they sit. Yeah. Now, do, do you mentioned, I think you said there was two of your study locations in the Ridge and Valley location. There was one study location on the plateau. Um, did you say there's four total study areas, though? Was that right? Well, two are up on the plateau or two are in the Ridge and Valley. Okay, okay. I was going to ask if you had a study group that was more in a flatland type scenario, but it sounds like you don't, right? No, no. Okay. Lots of people have asked, you know, are we going to study deer and more, you know, ag um situations and probably not for a while because that's even more complicated habitat situation (laughs) um and but and and there yeah and so yeah i don't have a lot of insights in those situations these are just 
large tracts of public land, um, predominantly forested. So, you know, so that's sort of the topography issues. The other one is the, the idea about deer, you know, going on private land. And so on the bound, we've got deer that are, that we've captured that spend time on public land and private land. And, uh, quite frankly, most of them, their hiding spot is on public land. Um, they might go down into the private land is more likely to have some crops and food resources. But, um, like I said, these deer don't leave their home range. I mean, they'd be nuts to leave your home range, right? They know it like the back of their hand. So they know where to go. They know, you know, where the danger is. Um, so they're going to stay within their home range. They're just seeking out spots that they've discovered. They're not going to get disturbed. Yeah. What about any patterns that show once a deer, maybe population or uh, individual deer has been spooked or bumped, pressured, how, how long before it returns back to its normal pattern? Yeah, that would be a great question, but that's a really difficult one to answer because um, we haven't radio collared any hunters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good um, point. Um, but I can tell you that, um, uh, you know, like we've got, I've got one of our blog posts is um, about a doe. I call her Hillside Doe because she had this spot that was in her home range. It was the steepest spot in her home range on the side of a, a ridge, and that's where she hid. And she would go there every day. Um, and there was one Saturday where, so, you know, like early in the hunting season, the first week or so, there's a lot, a lot of guys are just sitting. Um, and then later in the week, they'll start to put on drives. And so, especially that first Saturday and, and the second week. And um, there was one day where you could see where she was in her hiding spot and she got kicked out and she made this big loop around the edge of her home range that she didn't normally do but the next day you know and so then that night she was out doing her normal thing and the next morning she went back up to that same hiding spot hmm. so my guess is that even if you bumped a deer out of that hiding spot odds are it's going to go back to it yeah it makes sense as you said um it, it it makes the most sense from a survival standpoint to stick to an area you know, like the back of your hand versus going somewhere brand new when faced with danger. You know, if I was faced with danger, I would probably run into my bedroom and lock the door. Um, I wouldn't just go running willy nilly somewhere brand new. Um, so that, you know, that makes sense. Um, now some other things I've seen you guys write about in the past related to some factors that you guys took a look at some outside factors you took a look at to see how they may or may not impact deer movement. And, and, you know, a lot of our listeners, myself and Dan included, we kind of obsess over what types of things might impact deer as far as how often they move or how early in the day they might move, you know, like does the moon impact when deer move? Does uh, certain weather factors like temperature or barometric pressure or anything like that impact when and how much deer move? Um, can you speak to that? Have there been any things you have looked at along those lines, and, and what have you learned? 
Yeah, so um, so obviously the moon's a big one. Um, you hear a lot about um, about the moon affecting the timing of the rut, um, weather influencing the rut, um, weather and moon just influencing deer movements in general. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say we have the the final answer on this because a lot of people over the years have looked at tried to look at the influence of moon on movements and that sort of thing um and and the the results are sort of equivocal when you go in the literature some people said yeah there is an effect of the moon on movements and other people say no i couldn't find any effect um but I think with these, as more and more of these satellite collars are being used and we can get much more detailed information on their movements than we could um, in the past with, with the older collar um, technology, we'll be able to get at this. But from what we've been finding in our study is we can find very little influence of the moon on anything. Um, the Game Commission... Um, looked at road-killed females, thousands of them over a seven-year period. And um, basically, there's no relationship between the moon and the timing of when females get pregnant. Um, we've looked at the effects of, I had an undergraduate student this summer looking at, to see if, um, so for example, in a full moon, you might ex expect deer might move more at night and then to feed, and then they wouldn't have to move during the day. And um, she did find an effect statistically, but from a biological standpoint, I mean, the difference in movement was like you and I making an extra trip to the bathroom or something during the day. So she could find no effect of, of moon conditions on, on deer movements. Um, she also looked at rain and wind. Um, uh, there's some influence there. Um, I, I think it's kind of funny that we've looked at this a couple different times, and the suggestion is that males are kind of wimps. Um, if it's raining, they're less likely to move, but females don't seem to care. Hmm. Um, and then with wind... Um, there isn't much effect. Um, if it's really calm, they're less likely to be moving. If there's a little bit of wind, they'll move a little bit more. Um, some evidence to suggest that when you get very windy conditions, they'll move more. But again, um, we've, a lot of this work we've limited to the month of October because that's our archery season. And deer aren't really affected by the hunting that's going on at that time of year um but on the other hand it's a beautiful time of year and you don't get a lot of wind you don't get a lot of rain so we really can't say you know a whole lot about how that influences their mood or, you know i can say for october there doesn't seem to be a lot of effect but you don't get hurricanes in october and things like that right right so the the it sounds like from what you guys are seeing in your studies, and this is probably something that we as deer hunters would say is true too, just anecdotally, nothing impacts deer movement as much as hunting pressure, right? If, if there's anything that has a really significant impact, it's that. Would you agree? 
Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, you don't need to. You don't need statistics to see that. Yeah. When you look at these movies that I posted on the blog about what deer are doing during that, that uh, during our rifle season with the intensive hunting pressure, I. People have asked me about archery, and I've looked at deer movements that time of year, and, and you can't um, you can't tell anything. And then, of course, in between that's the rut, and the rut, you know, they're they're just in the rut <laughs> and they're going twenty four seven. Yeah, have you seen any patterns as far as uh, buck behavior or movement during the rut? I, I remember seeing one study. I do not remember where this study came out of, um, where they had seen that um, with these types of GPS or satellite collars, they could actually see that many bucks would go to kind of focal points within their home range during the rut, like two to three or four different focal points, these likely being doe hotspots or doe bedding areas that they would check you know, every 24 hours or so many hours throughout that rutting time period. Um, did you see anything like that in your study, or have you have you seen anything else as far as deer behavior, buck behavior during the rut through your own studies? Yeah, that's a really great question. I read that paper. Um, that work was done in Texas, and um, and so I, you know, I looked at a lot of our, you know, because I've made these movies to look at these deer movements, and I could not discern a pattern. And then I read this paper and I looked through that and I can honestly say that I, you know, just um, visually looking at movements can see nothing like that. Um, in fact, my students and I have been talking and we want to investigate that um, a little more quantitatively. And one of the things we're going to do is that we do have um, – in certain situations, we have both males and females in the same area, and so we can look at both of their movements. And in fact, um, we can see when a breeding event probably occurred because these satellite collars are very accurate. You know, they're within tens of meters, and you can see like these: this male and a female um, will have overlapping home ranges, and the male will be moving around, and then suddenly those two animals will be right next to each other for 12 to 24 hours. So you know that that's probably a male tending a female. And so what we'd like to do is take those situations where we know there's a male and a female, a male tending a female, and seeing if we can detect patterns of movement that are different from other parts of the rut and see if we can actually distinguish that. But I can honestly say that I have not been able to detect any pattern of males making regular movements, um, supposedly, um, you know, trying to check out females. Instead, what I see in our study areas is males um, <clears throat> basically doubling, tripling their home range area and just moving constantly 24-7, just going back and forth across their study area as quickly as they can constantly, um, my guess is searching for females. In addition, if you look at home ranges of females during this time of year, when they're most likely to be um, in estrus, um, their home range actually shrinks. 
And that makes a lot of sense, right? If you're lost in the woods and you want to be found, you sit still. So if a female's out there and she wants to be found by a male, don't move around a lot. If you want to find a female, move around a lot. And so that's what we see the males moving around a lot and the females actually reducing their movements. Hmm. What what percentage, and, and I don't know, well, maybe you, maybe you do know this. Um, you mentioned that during the rut, it seems like these bucks are just moving all over the place 24-7. Um, is that literal? Or what percentage, if you've, if you've tracked this to, to this level of detail, what percentage of the day during the rut is a buck actually like bedded down versus up and moving? And then what does that look like you know, in a period of the year that is not during the rut, um, bedded versus on its feet and moving? Yes. Um, no, you know, the, in Pennsylvania, um, half the females are bred by around the November 13th. So, um, so that, um, first that, uh, you've got like a two or three week period, um, in November, um, that, uh, that most of the breeding occurs and, um, and during that time period, a lot of the males basically do not have do not exhibit that crepuscular behavior you know where they're active in the around sunrise and active around sunset mm-hmm. and you know middle of the day and middle of the night they're less likely to be active that just disappears they're just going 24 7 um and and yeah that's what that's what they're doing and then Outside of the rut, then they they fall back to that as you mentioned, crepuscular behavior where they're most active at dawn and dusk, um, not so much in the middle of the night, not so much in the middle of the day. But it doesn't sound like you guys have ever looked actually. You know, on average, a buck spends sixty percent of his day moving around, forty percent of his day bedded. I'm just kind of curious of that particular number. I've never actually seen it anywhere. Yeah. Um... Jeez, I think I did a blog post about this a little bit ago. Um, this one buck that I followed um, during the peak of the rut, except for maybe 4 to 5 a.m., when it looked like he took a rest every day, the rest of the time he was just going. Wow. Yikes. Well, no what wonder. About, what about wounded deer? Have you, like, tracked a deer that was known to be wounded by a hunter and followed his patterns you know maybe not a critical wound and how he acted after being shot um not really um you know we catch these deer and they disappear we do know one that um uh got hit by a car um and survived um, but I haven't, to be honest, I haven't looked in detail to see what his movements were. Um, we, you know, we don't see a lot of crippling loss, um, you know, where a hunter shot a deer and then it died and it wasn't recovered. Um, we don't see a lot of, I mean, in the, 
uh, 17 years I've been studying deer in Pennsylvania, we don't see a lot of illegal harvest. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of insight on that. Okay, we're going to take one final break here for a word from our partners at Matthews Archery. And as you've heard over the past few weeks, Matthews has released their new Triax bow. And today we've got Matthews design engineer Mark Hayes to talk about one part of the technology in that bow, the new 3D damping. If you can imagine your point of contact, which is your grip on the bow, that's zero, zero. You can turn your bow in three directions from that position. So you can imagine forward to back, you can imagine left to right, and then you can imagine that twisting motion. All that happens from the grip. And if you can maximize the effectiveness of the damper in all three of those directions, which we, we have done well um, with in the past, but as our risers get more and more eye-shaped, which is a really stable shooting platform, the damper inherently got underneath the grip and you lost that twisting benefit. So by moving it out in front of the riser, you get the benefit of the eye-shaped riser, which is very stable, like I said, and you now have a system that is uh, working in all the directions that it should, and it really dampens the vibration well, what little bit that we have. So uh, from your perspective, why does that matter in a hunting situation? That Why does it matter to, to eliminate even more sound, even more vibration? Sure. Well, it's two things. One, it's just the experience of shooting. Uh, no one wants a, a buzzy bow whenever they shoot. It's the experience of that. It's letting the arrow go and just nothing. You don't feel anything. But two, obviously in a hunting situation, your target is not a foam target. It can move. Um, being as stealthy as possible is a goal that has always been around. And the quieter you can be, the more accurate your shot is going to be. And that's not necessarily because you're shooting better, but it's because the target is not reacting as fast or at all. If you'd like to learn more about the Matthews Triax and their 3D damping technology, you can visit matthewsinc.com. Here's another question as we're, as we're looking into these specific uh, examples out of curiosity. Another thing that I feel like, well, two, here's two things. So two common um, oh, old wives' tales of sorts, maybe, that we uh, like to talk about a lot. One being uh, the October lull. A lot of people like to say that uh, they believe deer just don't move, or especially bucks don't move very much in mid-October. Have you looked at this at all? Have you been able to see if there's actually any quantifiable decrease in movement um, during mid-October. From everything I've read and seen, that is not the case. But have you guys looked into that in your own study? Um, yeah, well, I'll be honest here. <laughs> until until this summer, I didn't even know what the October lull was. Um, it doesn't and I exist. Think a, <laughs> I, th I think a lot of it is from people looking at harvest data and um and making inferences from the harvest data the fact that a lot of deer get shot in archery early in october and then it tapers off and then it picks up again in 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 november and so um so and that's more of a hunter behavior issue than a deer issue because you need to look at the number of people that are out hunting um, so for example, I know my, my neighbor is a big archery hunter and he's out there the first couple of weeks, but then he's like, well, 
you know, this was fun. I got it out of my system, but I'm really going to wait till November 1 because that's when the I know the rut's going to start kicking in. And so I suspect a lot of this idea of the October lull is more an effect of hunter behavior and hunter effort. Um, I have not seen any evidence of an October lull. Yeah, well, I think that's that's what most of the other studies that I have, have read and seen seem to in- indicate as well. That uh, that there's not actually any real decrease in deer movement, but but certainly um, hunter activity and other things like that might change what we see as hunters. Um, and deer might change a little bit of where they spend time, um, but probably not the quantity of time they move around. So so it's yeah. interesting to see that you guys and, haven't seen that. And either. there's there's a lot of things going in and on in October. I mean, food source sources are are maturing, so. You know, if you're an area with a lot of oaks and it's a spotty year, that could cause changes in deer movements. Um, You know, people ask me about how, you know, food influences them. Unfortunately, I don't have a map. If I had a map of the, you know, oak production across our study areas, I could answer that question, but I don't. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of different things in the ruts kicking in. you know, that last week in October, probably 20% of our females are bred by the end of October. So that last week in, in October, you will see some males that will exhibit, you know, that those rut behavior movements, those real intensive movements. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on that, um, that I think more of it is the excitement of the early October opener of archery and then not much is happening until the rut kicks in at the end of October. Yeah. So, so is there anything else, Dwayne, that we haven't touched on that, that hunters need to know that you guys have learned from this study to this point yet? Any big takeaways you guys have had yet that you, that you wish more hunters were aware of or um, that we would find helpful? Well, I guess a few things. I mean, I'm not sure if uh, to think about, you know, especially during the, um, you know, during that rifle season. Um, so if there was any advice, um, um, I would give hunters is a, um, don't give up on the afternoon hunt. Um, what we found is that when you're sitting in the early morning, those deer are already in their hiding spot and they're sitting too. Um, of course, a lot of deer are shot then, but you know, these bucks that we're following, which are two and a half, three and a half, four and a half years old, a lot of them are just sitting when you're sitting. But by lunchtime, um, a lot of them have started making their movements. Um, and and so I think you, you know, pack a lunch and uh, don't give up on the afternoon hunt. Um, the other thing is knowing where these big bucks or older bucks hide, you're not going to sneak up on them. So you might want to rethink the tree stand and, um, you know, deer drives are probably going to be effective. Now, you know, you may not be the guy who gets it, but that deer is more likely to be harvested. I think if hunters worked cooperatively, yeah, that's that's probably the two big takeaways that um, 
that I would say that, you know, that have at least popped in my head as I've been looking at these deer and thinking, man, how would you ever get to this guy? Because he's got the perfect hiding spot. Right, right. These, uh, these bucks that make it to those older age classes, they make it for a reason right? They, they've made it to four or five or whatever, because they were able to find these little hidey holes that give them an advantage to, to avoid suckers like us that go out there looking for them. So it makes sense. And it, it definitely makes us work, work for our venison. No doubt about that. Uh, Dan, do you have any, do you have a final question or anything before we wrap things up? Yeah, I just have one question in regards to decision-making by let's say your research. All right. We've we see examples in other states that people have made a decision that hunting is not a good way or that people don't like hunting. So they pass laws that ban hunting and then maybe they capture deer and do castration. You know, they castrate it or uh, certain like in Canada, they've outlawed certain types of bear hunting because of emotion over logic. Do you, I guess, what are your thoughts on when research and uh, science are trumped when it comes to decision-making based off of emotions? Mm, help, help me here. Um, so your question is about how – Do you get do you get frustrated maybe when some of the uh, the – I guess organizations that you work with maybe don't make a decision. You know, the, the research or the science says, yes, you should do this, but maybe public opinion or emotion uh, trumps that and maybe a different decision is made. Um, well, it only frustrates me um, when clear goals and objectives have been set um, and identified and, um, biologists have taken those goals and objective collected data and said, if this is your desired goal or objective, um, this is what you need to do. And that is ignored. Um, that's frustrating because, you know, as scientists or managers, we're not, we're not the ones who say this is this is what the condition should be. Um, that's society's decision. So as long as society says, hey, this is what we want, wildlife biologists um, are perfectly happy going out to collect data and to make a recommendation saying, okay, if this is your goal, um, this is where you are, and this would be, this action would help you get to where you want to be. And when that's ignored, that's frustrating. Yeah, it's, and it's, that happens. That happens. You know, not that's not just an anti-hunter thing. I mean, when you know an agency has goals and objectives for deer densities, and they say this is where you want to be, and this is what you need to do, and then the decision is to for example, not harvest as many deer as what the biologist recommends or completely ignore their recommendation. That's really frustrating. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that being the case. And it certainly does seem like, to your point, Dan, that these types of things certainly are happening. And you hear from 
from other people involved with the management side of things that, yes, science-based decision-making definitely does get trumped by politics or um, certain segments of, of, uh, of the society being really noisy and uh, the greasy or the squeaky wheel getting the grease sometimes. And that is something I think we all need to stay vigilant about and uh, pay attention to what's happening. And, um, you know, as best as possible, keep people like you out there, Dwayne, who can help who can help our managers understand what's happening and um, make sure we're managing these places as best as possible. And uh, from everything I've well, seen, it certainly yeah. seems like you guys are doing that. Well, you know, everything in life is about relationships and trust. And uh, so one of my objectives with the blog and this research is to well, the research will help inform management, but the blog is to share information and to hopefully show as many people, hunters and non-hunters alike, um, that um, we do have information, that, um, that we have a skilled set of managers and researchers in Pennsylvania, and that we're trying to do the best we can with the resources we have to uh, help make better decisions for deer and for us. Yeah. And, and for anyone out there listening who has not yet seen the blog that you just mentioned, um, I highly recommend checking it out and following along because as I mentioned already, you guys from everything I've seen over several years now that I've been following you are posting some really interesting things, um, from that research standpoint, from a data driven standpoint that we don't see a ton of in the popular deer hunting media. Um, so, Dwayne, where can people go if they want to follow that blog or follow your study in more detail? Where can they find that stuff online? Yeah, just um, uh, the the URL is um, ecosystems.psu.edu/deer. Okay, we will link to that on the website on Wired to Hunt. Um, if you can't remember that URL and I'm guessing also if someone just Googled deer forest study, they'd probably find it that way too as well. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they would. Yeah. Gotta love the power of Google. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, well Dwayne, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap this up? No, thank you very much for the opportunity to share some of our findings and, uh, spread the word about the research we're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Dwayne. You know, one final quick thing. I noticed one uh, once when I was on your website, that there's a, uh, a link or a portion of the website dedicated to getting hunters involved and actually sharing some of their data with you. Um, is that right? And is that something you need? Do you need more hunters participating to help in any way? Yeah. So, um, so if hunters are hunting on our study areas, um, there it's posted with signs um, and there's a toll-free number to call, and they can just call us and give us their license number. And um, and then at the end of the season, we send them a, a, a survey. Okay. And uh, and maybe we can get some of these guys to throw some radio collars on too, right, to help with your study? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can, you know, you've got those apps, you know, Map My Walk and stuff. And, uh, yeah, that would be cool, but uh, we're not there yet. Yeah, I was. In all seriousness, I was thinking like there's there's got to be a way to do something like that to to get a number of hunters to have an app that tracks their location that you could use in conjunction with radio collar deer. You know, someday it'd be really neat to see a study yeah. like that. Um, 
and I'll I'll just try to take credit for it right here that that we were the first ones to come up with that idea, right? <laughs> uh, no, you weren't because we actually did something. <laughs> oh, like oh that. strike! <laughs> but um, but that was back when you you know you all we had were uh, handheld GPS units, and it was a lot of work. You know, out in the field, talk getting hunters to wear units and getting them back and stuff. But yeah, pretty soon if we can convince people to run the app on their phone and then email it to us. Yeah, we could do some of that stuff. We're we're pretty much there, possibly. Yeah, it'd be fascinating stuff. So, all right. Well, uh, Dwayne, we're going to wrap this up and just want to thank you again. We really appreciate the time, and uh, I look forward to continuing to follow along with the blog and seeing what kind of other interesting stuff you guys find out. All right. Thank you. And that will do it for us today. Definitely hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, Before we go, just want to let you know that we will be off next week, uh, taking a little time to spend with our families and friends, enjoying the holidays. So if you're bored next week, go ahead and listen to some past episodes. If you'd like, there's plenty of those. 193 Wired Done podcasts you can go back and listen to. 62 100% Wild podcasts you can go back and listen to. Another 21 whitetail Q&A episode, so you definitely have plenty to dig into. Um, so in the meantime, though, we do want to thank our partners who have made this podcast possible all year. We really, really do appreciate these companies uh, lending a hand to, to help us create this thing. You know, we, we put this thing out there, but it does take time and energy and funding. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, of course, thank you all for listening. I appreciate you taking time to spend with us really all year, all season. Uh, The fact that you've been following along with our stories, supporting us, commenting, and and sending messages of encouragement, sharing your stories, that's that's just incredible. It's it's been an awesome year, and uh, we just appreciate you being here along for the ride. Also, just want to wish you all a, a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. I hope you enjoy these coming days and weeks with those you love, friends and family. Hopefully you get out in the tree stand a little bit more to enjoy these final hunts of the year. And until next time and until next year, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.